ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Hello and welcome to Interdisciplinary Season 10. We are happy today to present to you Part 2 of the conversation between Cal Cates of Healwell and Rebecca Burnett of Australia. As you may recall, we ended Part 1 with a question hanging in the air. If you have not heard Part 1 of this conversation, I highly recommend that you take a minute and give it a listen. There's lots of good stuff in there, and the good stuff continues today um, as we begin with the answer to the question of how are the folks in Australia reacting to uh, the change in the approach to continuing education requirements. But first, a pun. So y'all, it's me by myself today, so I have only myself to blame. So I'm a book nerd, as many of you know, and I recently invested into a thesaurus, but when it arrived and I opened it, the whole book was empty. Every single page, blank, front and back, just blank. There are no words to describe how mad I am. And with my apologies for that pun, please enjoy part two of our conversation with Rebecca Barnett. So we had people who... For the um, it, whenever you introduce something something new, um, you know the first year or two is a nightmare. And so, again, in some ways, the pandemic was a blessing because that was our year where we chose to pivot, and um, it was planned anyway before before COVID started. So it was quite good because conditions were so different anyway that having this new thing in place it would have been a nightmare if we hadn't actually. Um, so it allowed us to make lots of recommendations, which we'd already been doing that we could, we could, as I said before, we could supercharge that. So we had people who went, this is rubbish. I don't want to have to sit there and document this thinking every time I do something because people otherwise could send in certificates and we go, yeah, tick, blah, sure. you know. Right. <laughs> um, great. That's wonderful. You know, we don't know whether you were sleeping during that class, but okay, fair enough. Um so, uh, but we, we've had people genuinely come back and say, you know, I thought this was ridiculous, but now that I'm doing it, I absolutely love it. This is just fantastic. This is brilliant. So we've had complete and utter converts. We've some, we have lots of people who hate it and they'll always hate it. And won't, won't matter what we do, they'll always hate it. That's okay too. Um, I know for me, I get a bit of, like, it's only been three years, but I get a bit of a buzz when I go back and read a reflection that I wrote two years ago and I went, oh, Right. Oh, cool. You know, um <laughs> right. 
So it is a mixed bag of reactions. There are some people who do it because they have to. So I'd say it's probably, you know, maybe sort of 30 love it, 30% love it. So I shouldn't um, like 45% do it grudgingly and the, the remainder, whatever that is, 25%, I hope I haven't just embarrassed myself, uh, just loathe it and they'll quietly suffer in silence. Maybe it's not that big. I don't know. That might be too generous. But let's just say we, we do an audit system and on most months, 30% of people have just got everything required that, that is necessary. We don't have to say anything to them. We don't have to do anything. It's all done. 30% are on the path and, um, you know, are not maybe finished, but they're getting there and it's not dramatic. You've just got to chase them up for a month. And then the remaining 30% are just like, wow, what's going on here? Nothing's happened and you're not responding to my email saying, hey, have you done anything over the last 12 months or, you know, whatever. And then by the end of the audit month, when we've got our batch of random people, probably we've got, you know, maybe... 10% who still haven't made it across the line, which is not too bad, really. No, I mean, right. 10%. Good Lord. I mean, I think about like, you know, when I, when I learned that very few, and I think this has actually improved, but very few physicians were still members of the American Medical Association, which has been held up as like this, you know, I was like, oh, huh. I bet most people don't know that. And when I talked to physicians about their requirements to practice, they talked about how much of it is just like, I just need to pay my money. It's not even really about demonstrating competency. And I was like, oh gosh, that's physicians. Like, I mean, I have no doubt that massage therapists can harm people, but man, if you're like operating on me, I really want you to know some things. And, and I yeah. really want to also be up to date and not doing that surgery that's been shown to not actually have any Totally. Yeah. yeah. Look, um, what I haven't mentioned, which is actually key to the regulatory question, is mm -hmm. that back in 2008, a really interesting thing happened in Australia. We have um, massages uh, by qualified practitioners who have those nationally recognised qualifications. Mm -hmm. um, remedial massage, we call it. Yes. Uh, is rebatable through the private health insurance system. Okay. And so back in 2008, and this was a real mixed blessing, the, um, the, the private health insurance industry passed these Rule 10 provisions which required anybody who was providing treatment who was in that non-registered space, so that includes massage therapists, to be a member of an association because that was their kind of way of gauging that people were qualified and a certain degree of quality assurance was happening. Okay. It was a really interesting moment back in 2008 because it's kind of like a, an enforced unionization virtually. Um, no one's, I don't think to my knowledge, really labelled it as such, but it's kind of a, the effect of it. Um, so if you want to be able to say I can, you know, you can claim your treatments through private health insurance, you have to be a member of an association and you have to be doing continuing professional development. You have no choice. So that gives a degree of quality assurance and it has certainly probably funneled a lot more therapists into associations that wouldn't have been in associations and it's probably also um, funneled a lot more people into continuing professional development that may be choosing not to do it. Um, 
it's a mixed bag. It's a bit of a poison challenge for associations because it put, puts us in a difficult position. A huge amount of AMT's resources is dedicated into administering that scheme. And so our traditional territory that we would have occupied in terms of promoting, promoting the industry and promoting the therapists is impacted by that. We don't have as much resource and time to put into doing that job because so much of our job is about health fund administration now. Uh, it completely, completely recharacterized the associations, actually. I don't know that anyone could necessarily have predicted by how much, but, but yeah. it's changed the nature of, of what they do. I, so I feel like, so we don't, in the US, we don't have to belong to an association, but we have to have a level of liability insurance. And the easiest way to get that is to be a member of an association. So we have a pair of associations that are, are we actually have a, a third one that's emerged recently. Uh, but basically, as an association, don't bother to exist unless you can offer liability insurance, um, because we like to sue each other in America. And that's a big thing. Um, but I think that the associations offer different levels of support. And I, and I imagine that the associations spend a lot of their time, like you just described, like it's not even about. My real question is what <laughs> I feel like sometimes we're pushing the river, right? That people come to massage because they don't want to think too hard about a lot of stuff. They just want to be nice to people, make their money and go home. Yeah. And there's like, maybe less than 10% of us who are like, oh my gosh, like the potential we're sitting on is incredible. And if we just like put some boundaries around this, if we just like do things that actually will support you in being a happier human and like a more effective being on this planet, you'll also be effective as a massage therapist, but there's not that buy-in from the profession in terms of those, what we call in America, soft skills. And so we just keep fighting to invite massage therapists to engage in the education opportunities that will expand their consciousness, expand their communication abilities. But as a profession, big air bunnies, um, <laughs> there's a real like, well, what will people pay for? And it's like, no, like, it's not about what people think they need. It's about helping people see what's valuable. And like the tension of that can be exhausting sometimes. Oh, I totally agree. I, but I think if it's 10% who are thinking in that way, that is monumental. That's big. <laughs> it, only take, it only takes 5%. Like most things happen because of 5% of the population who are doing those hard yards, getting exhausted because it's pushing the river, as you say, but they're the ones who are leading the way. And I can say to you, because I feel like I've maybe sounded too negative, but but the progress that's happened that I can see in terms of people dialoguing, um, you know, AMT's had a Facebook group since about, I don't know when, 2008 or something. And just the shift that we've been able to, to both lead and observe in terms of people engaging in this stuff. Like, like, to give you an example that's just a bit concrete, one of the courses that we started recommending as a, you should check this out because you might learn something thing was um, a massive open course offered by the University of Tasmania that's actually two they started with. One was preventing dementia and the other was understanding dementia. So the understanding dementia went into much more uh, complex uh, anatomy and, and physiology and, and uh, neurology. Um, 
And it was more like you are not going to, you know, learn a practical technique, but you might encounter, you know, people who are elderly who might be starting to express some dementia systems and symptoms and this might help you navigate that. And uh, one of those MOOCs, I think it might be the um, Preventing Dementia MOOC, it's the second most um, completed MOOC on the planet. It's huge. And the University of Tasmania has gone on to develop a whole lot of other um, massive open online courses and these really cool little micro units where you can do a unit in 10 minutes and that's all, you know, about um, aged care related topics. Um, so the the willingness that we saw for people to go, ah, oh, that sounds like a really interesting thing that's a bit different, I'll do that. We have hundreds of members. I would say conservatively that, you know, 30% of AMT's members have done that, that massive online open course or one of them. Um, there's another one, multiple, multiple sclerosis. So everybody who did the dementia MOOC went off and did the multiple sclerosis one because they love the dementia MOOC so much. So there is much more willingness to say, well, maybe we can think about doing education that will help us serve particular populations rather than worrying about what techniques that we are providing. And some of the conversations that happen on social media are becoming more centred around those soft skills that we're talking about. There's much more conversation about, about that. I mean, it's not happening everywhere at the same pace, but I am seeing, I'm seeing significant progress in that area which is a good thing because otherwise I would be completely despondent (laughs) so so I'm making the the I realize assumption are you a practitioner or have you been a practitioner yeah I I was so that's how I entered the industry and you know I'm mindful always of the fact and I don't know whether I've ever publicly told this story before but the thing that got me interested in in massage was, you know, sometime in my 20s, I went for a beauty therapy appointment. So it was the first time I'd ever done that. I don't remember why. So I had a full body massage and a facial. And um, the massage that I got was the most basic, protocolized, timed um, you know, I'll do effleurage of this leg 10 times and then you know, whatever the next technique is. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> right. But I remember lying there thinking, oh my God, this feels incredible. I'd really like to know how to do this. And that's what got me into massage. And I always remind myself that that was a massage given by a beauty therapist who was really only trained to do very basic stuff. And it still had an immensely profound impact on my life. And in many ways, to find, you know, the next however many years of like decades of my existence. So this is, a, I, I, I promise you listeners, I did not pay Rebecca to tell that story. <laughs> uh, so this is the, this is, I think, essential to the bedrock of the tension. I, I was going to say in this country, but I think broadly that like, so there are people all over this country and possibly your country, like when their kids go to school, they set up a massage table in their basement and people come and have the experience you just described. They're ostensibly healthy people. They want their nervous systems to be stimulated in a calming way. And maybe like they've got a cramp or whatever, they worked out too hard yesterday, but like they leave feeling better able to be a person. And I don't ever want us to regulate massage to the point where that can't exist. Absolutely, yeah. And our population as a planet is not getting healthier. 
and the complexity with which people arrive to our treatment rooms continues to increase. And so I think this is the ongoing tension of like, rubbing is good. Like if everybody got rubbed like once a week, every couple of days, the world would be a better place. So I don't want to stop people from getting relaxation massage. And how do we like, those aren't the people who should be going into the intensive care unit, who should be going into the dementia unit, who should be like working with people who require someone who's paying closer attention to skin breakdown and cognitive changes and all of these things. And so how do we move forward as a profession without this tiered idea that like, if you massage healthy people in your basement, you're less than this person in the ICU. And that whole story of like, well, I have more training than you. And it's like, no, we're all making it suck less to be people. And that is an essential thing (laughs) we need to do. Look, I I don't, that's, to me, that's the big, probably the biggest question, to be honest, that, that is how do you stop people from needing hierarchies and status? And you know, it's it's at the heart of a lot of the conversations that people have about being offended in Australia. It's it's really it's really offensive to be called a masseuse or a masseur, for example. You know, use my proper title. Same um, here. How, how do you stop people from being sort of disturbed by that and just focused on you know what they can do and 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 the profound impact that they can have on their lives. And if, a, you know, if a beauty therapist can end up basically, you know, defining my career. Really, right. <laughs> totally. Know, yes. And uh, then, yes, a, a very basic Swedish massage must be a pretty incredible thing. Um, and I think that speaks then to the education question, which is, you know, if rubbing, which people talk about pejoratively, is is sort of too basic then where we can really express ourselves is by is by as you're talking about you know thinking about other things that enhance practice beyond beyond the rubbing element of it and um yeah I think you're right I think it's it's what's the best fit to regulate to regulate an industry to allow that immense spectrum of of you know services that can be offered that all have value and should be recognized equally and this discussion happens a lot on um on amt's group for example in fact someone put up a bit of event post saying really fucking she's much more polite than me but Ah. i'm sick of relaxation massage being dissed because everything has to be remedial because i think that the work i do because she's not really interested in doing remedial work the work i do you know, delivering really high quality care in the relaxation space is incredibly important and valuable. And, How is uh, that not remedial? Yeah, that's exactly what she said. How is that not remedial that I've got somebody in my space who I'm, you know, giving this experience to? Um, and yeah, I mean, at one point, I'm not sure what the situation is now, but at one point, every single member of the AMT board thought that the invention of the term remedial massage was probably not a great development. It might've seemed like a brilliant idea at the time. But no it's, collateral it's, damage. Yeah. It's just enhanced all of these divisions and polarizations around what matters and what's important and what people should be learning, what they should be doing. And, and, you know, that sort of 
We uh, we just um, finished reviewing our nationally national competency standards. So that's our opportunity that comes up about once every five years to, to look at the qualifications and go, what's out of date? What needs to be moved on? And for about five minutes, I, I sat on the committee that was responding, this, this, um, the specialised committee that was responsible for doing that, the grunt of that work. I had to leave for various reasons because it wasn't my first rodeo. Um, but there was so much language in that that I was trying to say, can we can we shift the language from this being about the sort of um, paternalistic therapist delivering assessment and treatment and make it more client centered? Can we just can we just get rid of all of this, you know, the therapist doing something to the client language? And I didn't succeed in any of it, I don't think. There was people left behind who managed to shift it much more. Um, we've got we've got a uh, a unit on on um, pain management that includes contemporary pain science in in the qualification now, and we've got um, in the core rather than as elective uh, translating research into into practice unit. So they're big they're big changes that are significant and will be exciting, I think. Yeah. Um, but that language, that paternalistic, you know, I am the therapist and you are the client and I'm the one with knowledge and I apply that knowledge and skill to you as if you are a passive person on the table. Our, our competency standards are still littered with that language. And at one stage I said something about, can we just include social determinants of health? And <laughs> Heretic! <laughs> You know, I said something the about leftist. Yeah, it, you know, it, there's a list of things that influence people's health, and I said we should include postcodes in that. And they're like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Like that should be the first thing. Yeah. Um, well, so this, so this is, so these are the things we talk about on the show. So, I there are two things that I think are related that as you were talking, like, so we have a thing in the States. I feel like that again, as you're talking, I'm like, Oh, not unique to us, but many people are attracted to this profession because of their wounds. And there's such an immediate and fragile pushback when we say like, so you're here because you weren't touched, you weren't connected with, you weren't like in some way you want to avenge what has happened to you. And cool, welcome aboard. It's a giant club of people who are drawn here because of this, but you can't stop there. So now here's what's next. Here's how you take that experience and turn it into something that is of service to other people. But there's there's a similar, like, it's a response like, I don't know if you all talk about white fragility, but like when you mention to someone that maybe they are where they are because they are white, there's like, well, I worked hard for this. And, you know, like, I'm not open to this conversation. And I feel like this is something we're struggling with as a profession is that it, we're not calling you out for saying that you're here because your relationship with your dad wasn't great or because like, we're all here because of that. And we're all here because we don't want it to be just about that. And so how do we make that relevant to other people? How do we develop a profession that says we are here because of our wounds, but we're not going to share those wounds with the people we serve. And our job as a profession is to mature and move through and grow and heal in a way that is valuable to other people. And I don't, 
I think that's why, at least here, we tend to continue to spin our wheels as a profession because the idea is like, I'd rather go to technique classes where I don't have to look at myself, where I don't have to feel uncomfortable, where I can learn a thing that I can charge five more dollars for and like, and still help people. I mean, people leave my practice, you know, I learned this new technique, people feel happier, but like, I feel like as a profession, we would grow so much more in all the ways if we could say, there's nothing wrong with you because this is what brought you here. And now the work begins. But and instead, I don't, yeah, yeah go ahead, please. Instead, what happened in Australia, here's, here's the perfect kind of, I think anyway, personally, the perfect metaphor to describe what happens when you're a wounded person and, and you are attracted to the profession because of the wound um, is that you decide the best possible path you can take is stick needles into somebody. Like talk, talk about journalizing things. <laughs> um, dry needling is massive. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but it's massive in the US. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of built momentum starting, I suppose, in the early 2000s and is now at its peak. So there's not many therapists who either don't want to do needling almost as soon as they graduate or um, on, on rare instances, actually, some therapists are kind of told by their um, the clinics that they work in that they have to do it because people want it. Um, I wasn't personally aware that there was such a massive public drive for people wanting dry needling from a massage therapist, and I'm still curious about that whole phenomenon. Um, but, yeah, to me that's the perfect metaphor is what do you do when you're wounded? You go off and learn how to poke holes in other people and that sounds really dismissive of dry needling and I don't mean to sound that that dismissive but I still can't figure out how it's become so popular amongst massage therapists because I still struggle to figure out how you went from something that is fundamentally at its core non-invasive to something that is the exact opposite in such a leap yeah and I think it does point to I mean so to be like when I tore my hamstring dry needling was magic. Like I was like, Oh my gosh. But if a physio, basically a physical therapist did that for me and that made sense. Yeah. If I went to a massage therapist, I don't want dry needling. I want you to manipulate my soft tissues to support the healing that maybe the PT began or whatever, but these are two different services. And I do feel like there's And I think part of it is in like the way the training happens and also kind of how we get attracted to these things. But I think there's some, there's some sort of blurry overlap with massage therapy and physical therapy. I mean, physical therapists in America have mobilized and become doctors of physical therapy. So the division has become more clear, but I think there are still like, we do cupping, there are all these sort of like adjunctive, uh, like technique based machine-based adaptations of massage that massage therapists are clamoring after to monetize, to make it more, you know, to help people, but also like, how am I going to live doing this work? I'm going to, now I'm going to, you know, mobilize your fascia or I'm going to, you know, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I can understand needling as an option to take some pressure away from, from constant physical, you know, the physical demands of, of massage. Yes. But yeah, I didn't mean to sound like I was I was dissing it because I think it has it has a role to play, but it's more just my amazement that it was so successful at, at working its way into into the massage profession. Because I know for me, 
I have to tell you that if I went for a massage and someone said, I'm going to stick needles in you, I'd be really upset and angry. I would say, don't do that. That's not why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be taken, taken out of something, not, you know, not prodded into something. It feels very much, you know, sort of doing, doing too much. Well, and I think, I mean, I was recently in a conversation where it became really clear that worldview shaped what was acceptable and what was not acceptable, which shouldn't be revelatory. But like, when you think about it, like, so my perception is that like, as a massage therapist, my job is non-harming, which in fact means not doing hardly anything that will make you hold your breath, wince, squint, like I am here to provide some degree of pleasure. Like there might be what we call therapeutic discomfort where you're like, oh, as I work into your shoulder girdle, there's some soreness there, but not something that is so uncomfortable that like I have to change my body posture or my breathing that, and that there is value in that possibly at the hands of a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or somebody who is like realigning things in a way that. I don't know. And I, and I think that this is a conversation that we keep having is like, well, that's rolfing or that's, you know, structural realignment or that's, and that's within the broad umbrella of massage. And it's like, well, so then what does body work mean? Like we love to dive down the, like the, the rabbit hole of semantics. But uh, speaking of semantics, you used a word, I think that's really key to unlocking part of this and that is pleasure we are terrified of the idea that we give pleasure because <laughs> and edges is way too close to it being sexualized yes and, and so coming to an accommodation with the pleasure that we can provide so yeah coming to an accommodation uh with with that element of what happens the 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 sensual pleasurable elements of massage and being able to comfortably embrace that but see you know that not tipping over into something sexualized as a function of boundaries not of you know something immoral occurring or I don't know no no I think you do know I mean I think this is you know we we just we had a symposium a couple months ago about intimacy and healthcare, and we got so much blowback from massage therapists about like, I don't want to talk about pleasure. Like this is the problem. Like we're, we're confused with, you know, sex workers and blah, blah, blah. And this is not the same thing. And we're like, no, no, no. So this is your reaction is exactly why we're having this event because pleasure is huge to human mental health, to human physiological health. Like when people come to us, and I mean, I was very lucky to to luck to find my way into end of life massage at the very beginning. So I never internalized the stories of like, I'm here to fix you. Like I the people that taught me from the very beginning were like, there's nothing wrong with dying. This is totally natural. Here's your job here, and it's real minimal, and don't make yourself too important. And I was like, Oh, yeah, okay, that makes total sense. But I don't think that's what we get taught generally in massage school, we get taught like person's ankle hurts, must massage this thing. It will feel better. And it, it's, it's sort of like when we talk about how white people need to understand that their liberation is tied up with black people's liberation. Like, you know, I'm not telling you that it's wrong to massage near the ankle to make the ankle feel better, but you're going to be better. And your client's going to be better. If you remember that they're a whole person 
and that like possibly there's just an overall experience happening that's exacerbating the pain in their ankle. And so if you just focus on the ankle, great. But if you like say, I love you for an hour, what happens then? Yeah. yeah. And how do you do that if what you what you rely on is the bedrock of technique? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. But also um, the bedrock of assessment somehow that the assessment is the, you know, yes, the, the king or, and I'm not saying don't assess, but assessment can be a very broad term that doesn't yes. just one shoulder is higher than the other. It can no. be a huge range of things. And I guess the thing that makes me a little bit squeamish about the term assessment is I feel like it's generally used in that very paternalistic way, which is it's a thing that one person does to the other rather than an interaction and an exchange. And that's what yes. makes me squeamish about assessment is let's just let's just be knowledgeable and, and use these techniques, but but put them in an interactive frame rather than and now I am going to do this thing to you and I'm going to tell you that, you know, your PSIS is higher on one side than the other or whatever. Yeah. So then, so, so yes, bless you, all of those things. <laughs> exactly. So when we talk about like, because we're going to have regulators on this season and educators and regulators of education, sort of like, I mean, what's our job? Because I, I think part of our ambivalence and inertia is about like, I want you to be able to be the person who goes into their basement, their den, whatever, and says, I'm going to be kind to this person for an hour and it's going to make their life better. And it's going to make my life better. And I don't want to actually, I don't care about what happens when you develop Alzheimer's. I don't care about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. I just want to work with healthy people, ostensibly quote, big air bunnies, healthy people, and make them feel better and better able to be people. And I don't ever want to impede that. And I don't want that person walking into the intensive care unit. And how do we create a thing based, I mean, knowing all of our history of colonialism and paternalism and all of this stuff, when, even when we say tears, it's like, oh, people get all freaked out. Like, well, this tear is better than this tear. And it's like, no, like, are they just categories? Are they like, how do we decide who needs to know what? And when, and when some of what you quote need to know is inside you, how do we quantify that? If you could just solve that for us, Rebecca, that'd be amazing. Yeah, sure. Just, you know, how many minutes have I got? Um, yeah, I, I think, so I think there's, how do we do that as an industry? And then there's, how do we do that as society? And unfortunately the societal question is so massive that we have to figure out which parts of the narratives that drive all of that stuff we can we can disrupt and i that's defined my career figuring out when you need to you know use just your your local sort of area of interest to influence something and then when you can do something bigger picture and at the moment it feels like the bigger picture is enormously overwhelming but then i look at people like um Trisha Hersey, who's the, the Nat Bishop. Oh my gosh, totally. Yes. She's, she's been really successful at getting cut through. And I just think, okay, so the idea of rest as resistance is a narrative that's starting to take hold, which I yes. think 
the massage therapy industry should very much be interacting with. I prefer yeah. the idea rest as resistance to although you know mindful of the fact that that uh, much of what she talks about is race so I don't want to co-opt that but sure but um but people are starting to cut through with these messages about him you know being human and humanism and and giving people back their humanity so I think that the task for the massage therapy industry is pretty massive because we're fighting against huge societal forces. And, um, you know, many, many years ago, I used to treat a client who um, I inherited from a colleague of mine. And she would come once a fortnight for treatment and her treatment slot, which I think is very revealing, was six o'clock at night on a Friday night. So it was the end of her week once a fortnight. And when I first started treating her, I was trying to tread a balance between doing what she was used to with my colleague who you know we'd had conversations about it because my colleague acknowledged that it was less than ideal what she basically wanted in blunt terms was to be brutalized for an hour all over her whole body she just wanted really firm well she thought she wanted really firm massage all over her body yep which was exhausting for me because it was unpleasant because I knew I was putting somebody through intense pain for an hour solid it was horrible (laughs) right possible way and after a couple of months of this I just sat down and I just said look can we have a conversation about this because I really am struggling to do what you're asking me to do and I just don't feel like I'm helping you at all she had a chronic pain condition Uh uh-huh and she said yeah I have to admit I'm not really enjoying it but she was a she was a corporate high flyer Uh and her internal narrative was stress is okay because of my job like I can be a corporate stress head but it has to be a very narrowly defined kind of reason for me to feel stress it has to be sort of built in with my corporate identity so she had to give herself permission to just have an hour of bliss every fortnight right she had to she had to she had to really kind of let go of that corporate identity of you know if I come along and someone's just basically blissing me out once a fortnight then what am I doing that's just not part of my core identity so we completely changed what she she did and my aim my goal after that every fortnight was just to give her literally as much bliss and pleasure and time away from that you know really kind of restrictive corporate mentality and it completely transformed the whole process for both of us because I didn't end the session and, you know, kind of despondent and exhausted from working <laughs> as hard as I could. <laughs> right. But I think that's the societal mentality. is, And one of the reasons why I think we need to learn a lesson from the spa industry as well, because the spa industry gives permission for people to indulge themselves by charging enormous amounts of money. Yep. And there's something to be learned from that, I think. Not that I'm saying massage therapists should charge equivalent money, but we should look at that and go, okay, there is something going on here that that people need to feel like if they're going to allow themselves to step out of that, you know, overwhelming capitalist system of these are the things I have to do to function in the world, then it has to cost money because that's what we value. We value the dollar so, you know, that yeah. half a day of getting in the spa has to cost a fortune to justify me doing it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I guess I'm saying there's so many big picture forces and narratives and, and 
we have similar stuff going on. You know, we have we have a horrible racial history in Australia, and yeah. people don't understand why saying sorry to Indigenous people is just the beginning of the story, not the end. And they don't. You know, I can remember during one of our early um, Zoom sessions when. We, you know, we opened up this thing and I put in the chat, hello from, um, well, at that stage I was living in, in Sydney. So nowadays my thing is hello from Yeagle country, which is Rayanne. But I, but I put that into a chat and somebody commented in the feedback that they really hate it when things become political. And I thought, I bet you that was because we were acknowledging, you know, traditional ownership to, of, of, you know, particular lands. And, and I just thought, I wish I could speak to that person and say, I'm okay for you to, to critique that as a political statement as long as you can equally accept that not saying it is equally as political. It's yeah. exactly equally political. Well, uh, and I feel like you you just hit on the thing that like our episode could be the whole season and um, <laughs> they'll fire me. No, no, oh my gosh, are you kidding? <laughs> I feel like this is the perfect send-off into this season because this is why we're not moving forward in Canada, in America, in Australia, because it's not about massage, right? Like as this tiny little thing, it's about what we've done to black people, what we've done to indigenous people, what we've done to systems, how we've cowed ourselves to capitalism. Like this is all stuff we have to be willing to have the, the chops to talk about. It's not even the stuff like that. We're not in a place to fix this yet. Like we can't even look at it. And so can we start to just say like, listen, not blaming anybody in this room. I'm not not blaming anybody in this room, but I'm also like, can we just say, this is the landscape. This is how we got here. This is deeply problematic. How do we create a future that isn't based on this really sketchy foundation? And I just, I, I struggle. I mean, I'm encouraged by your your enthusiasm about 10% of people who are willing to do this, because I, I do, I think you're right. I mean, revolutions don't happen when 80% of people are willing, right? Like it's a much smaller percentage of people who are willing to risk being unpopular and saying like, so that doesn't sound true. Um, and I, I feel like just in this last few minutes, you really hit on, these are the things that we have to be willing to explore to really move forward because it is about pleasure. It is about history of oppression. It is about all these stories about how we relate and resist relating to each other in these most vulnerable ways. And until we unpack those things, I think we're going to just keep spinning our wheels and be like, this doesn't suck. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So and I mean, when you, when you acknowledge the size of those, those narratives, then it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit maybe naive to think that we can address that in five minutes through a bunch of people talking about it and professional associations trying trying to address it in, in various ways. And so we should maybe cut ourselves a little bit of slack. Yeah. Because they're big, they're, they're big things. And, and my whole shtick, especially during the pandemic, because I felt like the pandemic was a perfect opportunity for, for massage therapists to think about their role within healthcare more broadly and I don't see my my whole personal belief is that you cannot be a healthcare worker without being an advocate right you just cannot do it no nope. you have to be an advocate for something and so yes. it just depends on where you decide to channel that advocacy and whether you acknowledge that it's advocacy because some advocacy can be monumentally shite 
Yes. And I feel like the pandemic was an opportunity for massage therapists to say, we stand against the kind of inequalities that have meant that the, the pandemic has disproportionately affected these kinds of people. Yep. So to give you a more concrete example of that, um, we have this national disability insurance scheme in Australia. The way massage therapists interact with it is not straightforward. It's just like any bureaucracy. It's irritating. People are always confused by it. But my whole thing is if you want to work within the NDIS, this is very judgmental of me, so I'll put that at the beginning, but if you want to work in and, and benefit from that government funding to work with people who have disability in whatever form, if you are not shouting from the rooftops at the unequal impacts of the pandemic on that yes. community, then don't work in that space. No. Become aware and start screaming about yes. how there are people, we don't want lockdowns because they're awful, but it's okay for a section of the community to be locked down forever because yeah. that's not okay. Nope. Yeah, become aware and start screaming. That might be our new logo. Um, <laughs> yeah, that. I mean, because if you become aware and you're not inspired to scream, you're not so aware. Like... <laughs> Yeah. It really, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I'm, I am so grateful for your, um, the generous gift of your time and experience. And, um, I'm glad we've made a new friend. Um, <laughs> I think we're, we're engaged in the same conversations. I was going to say we're fighting the same battles, but they're not battles. Like they're yeah. conversations that we're afraid to have. And I, I, I want us to develop an, an increasing ability to have these conversations because this is the way forward. And, and I think um, if you if you think about them in terms of narratives rather than battles, then it it also um it takes the sting out of it and it it kind of defines the purpose a little bit more readily that definitely that you're trying to create a narrative rather than fight with people. You're trying to, you know, redefine the way people think about things, which is yes. less scary and threatening than saying, oh, you know, I don't agree with you or I'm going to fight with you about this until the ends of the earth because you're wrong. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think just, you know, building that that leadership wave. And I and I do genuinely believe, I mean, I have my dark moments, but I do genuinely believe that it's happening. Yes. And I think my biggest fear, if you asked me five years ago, is that we would take the same path that happened in Australia in the early 1900s, where we had a bunch of massage therapists who became physios and kind of attached themselves to the hegemony of the medical system. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to keep repeating that mistake. I yeah. think we occupy a space and it's a complicated space, but we yes. need to hold on to it. Definitely. And, and the uniqueness of that space is our strength. It's like saying you're colorblind doesn't actually serve the main purpose. Like it's actually about recognizing and holding up our differences. That is where we occupy the space that we, that we currently occupy and just want to be seen in. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. It's it been has. And I, I always love when a guest brings their own joke. So um, we're going to just threaten to have you back. And um, thank you so much for everything you're doing in Australia and for the time you spent with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Rebecca. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Cal. Certainly.
Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.